father was killed in Afghanistan by a roadside bomb in 2005. And pretty much everything since then I've done and I've lived my life in a way that I hope makes my father proud. He loved this country and I like to think he would look at what I'm doing and say, good for you for holding these people accountable. Hey everyone, I'm Katherine Lawson and this is The Longleaf Pod, where I talk to people who are adding value to communities across North Carolina. This episode, I'm talking with Nick Oxner, investigative journalist at WBTV, the CBS affiliate in Charlotte. Nick shares how he got into journalism, the process of investigative reporting, and the future of his field. Enjoy the show. All right, Nick, thank you so much for talking with me today. So Nick Oxner, you are the investigative reporter at WBTV. I am. Howdy. So how did you end up being an investigative reporter? Interesting question. Um, In short, I like to ask people questions they don't want to answer, and I found that out by accident. Uh, So (laughs) I, I went to Elon University, and I didn't know a soul there. I grew up in Fayetteville. Turns out not a whole lot of people will go to Elon. And I, well, so I, I really didn't know anyone except for one dude that I'd done high school debate with. And I kind of knew him. And so I saw him one day, right, like my first week on campus. And he said, hey, I do the uh, student newscast here at Elon. You should come try out the student newscast. And I thought, well, I, I watch a lot of news. Uh, sure, why not? That sounds like fun. Uh, but I went to Elon thinking I wanted to major in political science and work in politics. And so... I go to the newscast, the interest meeting. Um, there were some crazy people there, which intrigued me some, and the news intrigued me some, and it seemed like a fun thing to do. So I started doing the newscast and like getting involved in, in reporting. And throughout my entire four years of college, I still said, you know, I want to work in politics when I graduate. But this news thing is kind of a nice background, you know, to have a nice Mm. perspective. If I wanted to work in politics, I ran political campaigns in 2008 and 2010, even as I was doing the student news stuff. Um, And I got to be really involved in it, really impassioned by it. Uh, And then in March of my senior year, I still wasn't going to go into news and uh, two alums who um, had graduated a couple years before me visited, and both of them were like, you need to be a reporter, and you need to go work at the station that we both started at, which was in Lubbock, Texas. And so I guess I, you can say I got peer pressured into, uh, into being a reporter. And the rest, as they say, is history. Gotcha. Well, there's a lot that I want to follow up on with all of that. But in your kind of day-to-day life right now, um, so how much of your kind of journalistic process is asking questions that people don't want to answer and what else goes into kind of the overall work of putting together kind of a deep dive journalism report? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I'm not actually sure I spend, if you look at, you know, a pie chart of my day, I think the sliver where I'm asking people questions is actually probably pretty small. Um, and that's, you know, by design, because before I go ask those questions, there are a lot of things that you have to do to be ready to ask those questions, to know you're asking the right questions, that you're asking the right person, what have you. So um, I spend an inordinate amount of my time on the phone with people, uh, sources, Mm. tipsters, experts, you know, what have you. Um, I spend, my wife hates talking on the phone, and so she comes up and sits in my (laughs) office or tries to come by, and we used to work in the same building, she used to come by and say, hey, and I'd always be on the phone, and she'd just she tells me regularly she'd pull her hair out if she were me. Uh, so, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people. 
I also spend a lot of time, you know, traveling and meeting with people as well, because that's in, I am lucky that I have the luxury of time compared to most TV reporters, you know, most TV reporters mm-hmm. where you'd call general assignment, or maybe even if they have a beat, uh, most of them are required to be on television every day. I don't have that requirement. Um, and I have, even when I am on TV, I have a lot more flexibility. Maybe I, I did the story in advance and that allows me to travel somewhere else that day. So I spent a lot of time meeting with sources, um, having conversations, and then I spend a lot of time doing research, which could literally just be a Google search. Um, you'd be surprised an investigative reporter's first start is probably almost always Google. <laughs> Um, and going, it's the same for lawyers. Like, Google is great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one time Your starting place, not, not the end I, point, I was, but you know, that's right. That's right. Well, I, when I was working in Norfolk, Virginia, um, we had a group in the station that night. I think they were doing some like Twitter meetup thing uh, or something. So they were near my desk. And that night we happened to, at the end of our six thirty or six o'clock newscast, right about six thirty. Um, a rocket that was being launched from Wallops Island, which was in our viewing area, blew up. <laughs> they were supposed to go to the space station. Instead, it blew up like 30 seconds after mm. launch. And and we happened to be carrying it live on our air just as a nice like bump shot. And instead, we actually – it was an unmanned rocket, so it wasn't sad. It was just like, mm-hmm. holy crap, what happened? And right. so suddenly, I'm like jumping into action, you know, investigative reporter. Let's find out what happened and, and get all the background information we can find. And so these Twitter meetup people uh, – and, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm on Google. It's the reporter's best friend. And, and some lady said, well, I bet Walter Cronkite would have not would have used something better than Google. And I thought to myself, <laughs> well, he wouldn't have if he had it. I mean, what a, what a great resource Google yeah. is, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so a lot of research, a lot of public records. Um, this ebbs and flows, but it feels like I spend a lot of time talking to lawyers, either reviewing my pieces and making sure I don't get sued or, you know, I have a pretty healthy um, load of, of people that I have sued for public records and other legal action I've taken mm-hmm. to, to um, compel production of, of certain documents. So that's, right. And those you know, would be like government records, right? So public records yes. requests, Freedom of Information yes. Act requests, those kinds of things. Yeah. Court records, what have you. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. I was up to... I guess at one point recently I had five pending at one time. So that's <laughs> that number's shrunk down a little bit. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so you have this, you know, this process for researching a story, researching sources, talking to people, kind of getting your information squared away. How does how does that differ or does it differ when you're dealing with kind of a new a new area for yourself, whether that's a substantive policy area, a new agency you haven't interacted with, like how do you kind of be, get yourself to a point that you feel you can understand something enough to report on it and educate the public? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there are, I, at any one time, I have a list of between 30 and 80 stories that I'm, or topic areas that I'm working on. And that could mm. be, that could be multiple series, multiple stories in a particular topic that I've been investigating for a long time. That could be, tips that I've gotten that could be records that I've requested that haven't come back or some that have to come back that I haven't looked at yet. And then I, and then I have these um, certain subject matters that I've always been interested in. I've been a reporter for seven, seven and a half years now. And so you just like are curious. That's why you're a reporter, right? Like, cause you're curious about mm-hmm. things. And so I have these topic areas that I'm just curious about. 
And so for some of those stories that sit on my list, they could be perfectly fine stories, but they would make sense if you waited till they were like relevant. Right. And then they'd be mm-hmm. hard hitting. And then same thing with some of those topic areas. And so I don't think my bosses believed me about this at first, but, but, you know, now the, the, uh, my boss that I work with and coordinating my stories, she knows like, oh, at some point Nick's just saving this because at some point something is randomly going to happen and suddenly he's going to have this amazing story just waiting to go. And oddly enough, that, that mm-hmm. is absolutely, <laughs> it's weird. It'll be like, <laughs> hey, I have this entirely researched. Uh, you know, investigative story that's relevant to this thing that's breaking right now that we can pull on the air. And so, um, huh. so a lot of times sources will call me. If anyone's listening to this that knows of government wrongdoing, give me a call. Always happy to talk. Sources will call me <laughs> and they'll say, hey, you should really look into this. And it starts with a conversation with the source. Um, or the other way is I'm just really curious about something, so I put in a public records request, right? Um, but mm. these days, most of my stories are source-driven. Um, and so the source has to bring, generally speaking, in order for me to pursue it, the source has to bring me some some documents or some amount of information that gives me a pretty good baseline, Right. And mm-hmm. then I have to go authenticate those documents um, or I have to authenticate that information. I, I really like documents, be that paper, video, audio recording, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I spend time authenticating that. I spend time learning about what if there are other underlying issues involved. I spend time learning about that. And um, I like to know a lot of stuff. Right. That's the other fun part of my job is I get mm-hmm. to learn a lot of random stuff about random things, right? <laughs> random topics that I have no reason to ever care about. And, um, and so that's, that's, and you know, again, if something, if someone calls me and they've got the best story in the face of the planet and it needs to go right now, I might stop what I'm doing otherwise. And I might go put, you know, some time and effort into, into doing that. Um, that actually is what happened mm-hmm. with the, with the DMV story. We got a tip in and we got the information about that there was a secret DMV office and uh, I was in the middle of a bunch of other stuff and I kind of said, hmm, people have spent the last few months, you know, complaining about these ridiculously long lines at DMVs. I think this is something that I need to stop what I'm doing and go look into. <laughs> and and I did. I mean, I think we turned that in probably 10 days or so, which is really fast for us. That's so interesting because it sounds like, I mean, it doesn't just sound like, like you're describing a very kind of judgment call heavy process of deciding when a story is worth pursuing, when a story needs to be told, right? And that the and the factors that can affect that can can vary depending on, you know, what's happening kind of in the outside world, what information you have. What what does what is it like to kind of look at a story and say, okay, maybe the time demands it right now. Like it's a very relevant story, it's very topical, but maybe I'm not quite everywhere I want to be on a comfort level with the sourcing, with the research, with my familiarity with it. Do you have to juggle those kinds of tensions or do you have some freedom from that because you don't have kind of like a daily production requirement like a lot of TV reporters or other types of journalists? Yeah, I'm lucky in some respects that if very rarely, if ever, do my bosses come to me and say, Nick, we need you to do a story on X. Right. Um, And so Mm -hmm. in another in another version of my job, I may have to grapple with that side of it more. Um, mm-hmm. 
But I think at the end of the day, a big part of being a journalist and what separates journalists from anyone else with a pub publishing platform, right? And I think there could be citizen journalists. I don't think you have to be paid to be a journalist. I don't think you have to have a big fancy job like I do to be a journalist. But I think what separates a journalist from just random curious people is the fact that we spend a lot of time thinking through those, you know, gut decisions and judgment calls. And we spend a lot of time researching to make sure what we're putting out there is true and accurate and the best version of that truth, right? Because there's only one, I, I, I approached my job, I got into a debate with my mother about this this weekend. There's only one truth. <laughs> there's only one truth. There can only be one truth. Mm -hmm. um, now, there might be versions of how that truth is told with, um, with, you know, different contexts added in, right? We can mm -hmm. certainly see that. And I think it's my job. I generally say there are three sides to every story. I'm hoping to capture at least two. <laughs> but, mm. but you know, when we're talking about fact-based things, there's only one, there's like a fact is either true or false, right? I mean, that, that's what it is. And mm -hmm. I, I think that makes my job easier. But a lot of times when I go into a story, when I go and start asking people questions, especially in the last couple of years, they'll call my boss up and they'll say, well, Nick sounded like he had his mind made up about this already before he went and got our comment. And he says, well, no, Nick's done his <laughs> research. And yeah, and it's true. When I go in and I start, especially if you're the head of some government agency who I'm doing a story on about something you did wrong or something that makes you look bad, you know, a lot of times, especially in today's world, public information officers will want to spin it. They'll want to try to make it sound less bad than it is. Well, if I've already done my research, my homework, I know what's true and what's not true, right? And I mm -hmm. use that to, to challenge people's explanations of things when they want to provide explanations that aren't consistent with the entire body of fact. Mm -hmm. So, and so I'm curious when, so say, you know, you've written, you've written your piece, you've got the two, two of the three sides. Yeah. And then after the piece has been written and all the facts, which are all true are there a third side of the story comes up and mm -hmm. you have to add it into a story. How do you do that? Especially when, you know, the attention span of the general media consuming <laughs> public right. is so short, right? I mean, like things like the first version, first impressions, especially in political news just will take off. And they're very, it seems like they're very hard to shake once they get out into the public. So how do you approach adding, you know, the additional facts, more facts into a story that you've already done. Yeah. So I think I actually had a, a, a somewhat sticky situation pop up last week. We did a story. It's based on information that we had authenticated. Uh, we'd given everyone an opportunity to comment. Um, they had. We had checked the, the neutral source of the underlying and key facts in our story that had given us great information and confirmed our story. And we reported it. Um, and then we heard the next day from, from the neutral clearinghouse of information that underlined our story that they were wrong. And whoops, mm. nothing I could have done to prevent that, right? Nothing I could have mm. done because I called these people. I double checked with these people. I triple checked. We gave, you know, the one side the chance. We got our primary source documents. Um, and so when we have a situation like that, uh, it's really just incumbent upon me. Uh, to go out and correct the record in all the places that we had already 
published the previous information. Now, lucky for me, mm. in the instance I just pointed out from last week, we had only done a web story that we hadn't posted on Facebook or tweeted. We were about ready to do a TV piece when we found out that we had been given some bad info. So we pulled that down, thankfully. And so in that mm. case, we just updated a web story, right? And we noted that we updated. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have to tweet anything or, you know, go on TV and issue a correction or whatever. Um, because we hadn't in that particular instance. But I think it's incumbent, if you want to be a credible journalist, I think it's incumbent upon me or whoever it is to be loud and swift in, in making your corrections. You know, a couple years ago, um, we did a story, I guess is probably sometime in 2016, we did a story that said uh, then State Representative Charles Jeter who uh, lives down here in the Charlotte area, uh, had voted twice in like the 2004 election. Mm -hmm. And it was based on voting records in both North Carolina and South Carolina, in particular, it was based on these set of South Carolina voting records that someone had given me. I'd called the Board of Elections in whatever county in South Carolina, and they confirmed it. And then I called the State Board of Elections, and they confirmed it. And then I called Charles Jeter, and I gave him a chance to give his side of the story. And he said, well, I don't think I did, but I, I guess if that's what the record says, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. And we published that. Well, three or four days, and it caused a big stir, right? Because mm -hmm. a sitting lawmaker voting twice, that's illegal. Right? That's a big story. <laughs> uh, and like right. three days later, the South Carolina Board of Elections said, whoops, someone signed the signature for their vote next to Charles Jeter's name, and it wasn't Charles Jeter. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah. Right. And so what did we do as, as the second I found out, I tweeted it. I think we found out pretty late in the afternoon. So I went on television as soon as I could and said, hey, we reported this the other day. And it turns out someone else messed up and he you know, didn't vote twice. And we did a new web story about it. and We publicized that web story. And so, again, I mean, look, we're all human. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are times like I just described to you, too. Now, luckily, they're they're not that frequent. Um, but there are times when. I, in the course of my reporting, can go check every source, can double check, can get my primary source documents. I can put out everything that, that you know, I can go through the checklist and, and can still end up being wrong through no fault of my own. But nevertheless, that and sometimes I, I could, it's really my job not to be wrong, but sometimes I could be wrong through my fault too. But um, when that happens, it's, it's my responsibility to make sure I go back and tell people about that and correct the record. I think that's so key to, like you said, just maintaining a public trust in the integrity of your reporting, especially when the integrity and the importance of journalism is frequently questioned. And I think it matters to be able to point to those examples of saying like, hey, look, clearly we know we are human and fallible and we fix it when we need to fix yep. it. Yep. Yeah. So I think Absolutely. that's a, a necessary perspective and a good, good and necessary step to take. So when you were, you know, at Elon, you were just getting into all of this, you know, the notion that journalism and news could be fun. Did you think that you were going to be handling those kinds of judgment calls like on a day-to-day -day basis in this profession? Uh, yeah, mostly because um, I had one, a really good professor at Elon named Rich Landsberg. He's mm. still there. He's a, he was an old curmudgeonly reporter. I tell that to his face. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, taught us those kinds of things. And, and, and two, we had a really active student news program you know student newscast that we turn mm -hmm. into kind of a multi-platform thing we were always breaking news all the time and mm -hmm. um we would and i really got a sense of of the power that journalism has and that i have as a reporter 
when we would do a story about um, some, you know, just on a regular basis, it would happen. Some kid would do would get drunk and do something stupid and then get arrested for doing the stupid thing and for being drunk under it. Right. Happened all the time. <laughs> yeah. And we would get requests from these students to take the story down like a year or two later when they were graduating, trying to get a job and found out that, mm. you know, HR recruiters <laughs> Googled their name and, find the, <laughs> you know, find their mugshot. Yeah. Right. And, um, and my professor always told us, well, look, you need to think about the long lasting impact you're having on people's lives by doing the story and by keeping the story up. And he didn't tell us one way or the other, whether he thought we should take it down, but he just said, do, you know, you should consider that as you, Hmm. as you make your decision. And, And when you think about it in those terms, I mean, we journalists have a very important job to do. In informing the public and 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 the, I know, for instance, and especially with what I do, when I do a story that involves someone, it's probably going to have an impact on their life, some one way or the other, right? Good, bad, mm. it could just make them angry that day, whatever. But you know, we we do things that are impactful for people, and I think it's important for us to remember that. So, other than being curious and wanting to ask questions people don't want to answer, what's kind of what's kept you in this profession? Like, what makes it continuously? interesting and engaging and worth staying in despite it, it. I mean, it's a difficult career. Yeah. Well, you know, at this point, now that I'm like seven plus years in, I really can't picture myself doing anything else, at least, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad, you know, I, this is what I was supposed to be doing. I'm glad I'm doing that. Uh, so one, it's exciting and it's new every day. Every day is a new thing. Every day is a new challenge. I really like I really like challenges and I like situations where people tell me no and I get to yes anyways, right? I mean, that why you're a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Problem solving. Some days, right? yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and so everything's new and exciting. And I, I really think particularly with the kinds of reporting and stories that I get to do, I'm having an impact. And if I didn't think what I was doing was having a real impact, and was a real benefit to, to to the state, to my viewers, to, you know, whatever, you know, maybe I wouldn't be so inclined to continue doing the story. But I feel like I get to do stories that matter. And that's, you know, pretty rewarding, pretty gratifying. Uh, yesterday, we did a story, put a story on television where uh, a veteran called us because he had the VA didn't send him one of his he's a disabled combat veteran disabled serving in the first Iraq war. Um, the VA didn't just didn't mm-hmm. send him a, a disability check for the month of May. And then after months, he couldn't get them to send him the check. And so he called us. And you know what? In four days, we got that man a check by calling the VA. Like, that's the power of what, you know, reporters can do if, you know, if we know how to do our job. And so that's cool, right? Like, it's cool to help people. It's cool to uncover things that, you know, are wrong, people doing bad things. Um, all that is is good and rewarding. What are the things that are frustrating about what you do? Mm, so many things. Uh... No names. <laughs> That's right. No, I think a couple, a couple different things. Probably, actually, the biggest frustration that I have is that there are too many stories to investigate and not enough me. Um, mm. I, you know, and I hear from, you know, we have a tip line, right? And so I check our tip line every day, and I hear from all these people who really do actually sound like they've been wronged. But who I just, you know, I don't, I can't, I can't help them, right? I don't have the time. I don't have the manpower. 
Um, so that's actually pretty frustrating. You see these other stories, yeah. you know, I have to pass on, on stories that people pitch me and, and that I hear about because I just don't have the time to do it. So that, that is actually probably my biggest frustration. You know, if I could carve out a, an extra couple hours in a day, maybe I could get to some more stuff, right? But at some point, mm. um, you can't get to everything. So that's a pretty big frustration. Frustration number two is generally speaking, and it's not directed at one side or the other because they all do it is the number, the growing number of, of elected officials and other government leaders who think that they simply don't have to be held accountable for their actions and to the public. I mean, we uncover agency X doing bad thing Y, and we go to ask them about it, and they think it's acceptable to just not talk about it. Mm. Um, it's never acceptable to not talk about it. You know, like it or not, people have to be held accountable. And if you do a thing that looks questionable, you have to explain yourself for it. And people, all levels of government, people, the state level, county level folks, small town, mayors, you know, everything in between. I'm sure I could include D.C. in there. I don't really cover D.C., thankfully. People at all levels do that. I encounter a, a large number of people who think, you caught me doing this bad thing. I'm not going to talk to you about it. And, you know, mm -hmm. people who have watched my stories know that's not an option when I want to ask you a question. So um, so that's very frustrating. And then kind of relatedly, I, you know, make a lot of public records requests. And the amount of time that agencies spend thinking up of ways to not produce records or information from their government agency that they are required to produce by law is people would be would just be shocked by the amount of of yeah. just time their government is spent obstructing me getting access to records that, that, you know, really are the property of the people. And we'll start, someone will purposely misquote me the law, someone will just straight up lie to me, uh, you know, all the time. I, I, I encounter that all the time. And unfortunately for them, it doesn't work. So when you're in those, like, very, those frustrating spaces, and, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, and you travel a lot for, for this, right? Like you're based out of Charlotte, but yes. you're in Raleigh very frequently and you kind of go all over the place to pursue these stories, right? Far more. I'm in Raleigh far more often than I've <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay, Luckily, so, my mom lives in Raleigh, so I get to see her at every place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you guys get to, you know, debate absolute or relativistic truth. That sounds great. <laughs> we actually, she came to Charlotte on Sunday, actually, in a rare, oh, in go. a rare, uh, her driving down 85. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. But so, but so when you're in the, when you're in those moments of like either extreme frustration is, are the good sides of the job enough to kind of keep you in the space of, of, of liking it, of going forward, of keeping yourself kind of in the game? Or do you have like other resources you draw on in your life to kind of keep yourself centered and keep yourself, I don't know, grounded? pick your, you know, nature oriented word of choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say actually the frustration from people not wanting to talk to me and people trying to hide things from me certainly actually propels me to keep doing my work more. I mean, I think if you ask my coworkers, I share a like kind of two room office with my producer, um, who's, and he and I've worked together since I started here at WBTV three and a half years ago. And, um, he'll tell you, I'll get real excited about something. And I work upstairs from our newsroom. So, you know, if I'm really excited about something that I race down the stairs and I go talk to, you know, one of my bosses about it or some in the newsroom, um, 
and and normally that's when I like when I've got you know when I've caught someone red-handed doing something or you know I get that piece of information that's like crucial and so that frustration actually drives me and, and the same thing with just there being so many stories out there right so many stories mm-hmm. to tell and and so that actually keeps me keeps me going as well I I don't think I don't think there's a whole lot discouraging about this business not from not for me and not on what I get to do anyways. You know, most of it I find to be challenging in a good way and fun. You know, mm. now, when when you're like in a protracted, uh, when you're in a protracted, you know, process of, of doing these real high pressure stories, sometimes that can, that can get stressful. And um, I like to walk my dog. Dog walking is a nice thing, mm. right? Nice way to relieve <laughs> stress. Um, and my dog is is better than any human I know. I think my wife would say the same thing. So, um, so, so, you know, those are kinds of, but, but generally speaking though, like the frustration and and that kind of stuff, the brick walls that keeps me going. Well, as we wrap up, so I want to engage in some just rank speculation about your industry. What do you think the next like five to 10 years (laughs) (laughs) of investigative journalism looks like? I mean, we've seen in the past 10 years, so just an immense transformation of news and media especially through the introduction of just like social media and it as a platform for news, for the communication of news. So how do you think, I mean, I think your industry is in a unique position of, of adapting to these technologies and the pressures that these technologies are creating, especially when it comes to people's attention and life cycles and, you know, measuring value according to clicks. So how do you, how do you kind of see things adapting over the next little bit or how do you hope they adapt? Yeah, well, you know, this is both an incredibly fun and exciting time to be in the journalism world and also really freaking scary, right? <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> I don't know what the business is going to look like in 10 years, right? And no one does. But I think we all know that it's not going to look like whatever it is we're doing today, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's true for for TV people, certainly true for newspaper people. Although I think they've kind of figured it out already. They're not going to print a, a bunch of stuff on paper anymore. <laughs> um, and so they've, they've already kind of been forced to adapt. But so I, and there's all this, I kind of actually think of it as, I kind of think of it as what was going on uh, when the printing press was developed, right? Like mm. around the turn and, and when newspapers became really like there was a point in American history where there were like, you know, eight newspapers in New York, right? And, 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 and a plethora of papers because paper was so cheap, ink was so cheap, it was so easy to have a paper. And whoever owned that newspaper had a big platform, right? And a big outlet to influence people. And so we're kind of in the same space again. Instead of paper this time, it's these digital platforms. Because again, it's mm-hmm. relatively cheap to make a website or mm-hmm. have a blog or a popular Twitter platform. And and you can have an outsized influence and, you know, and, and so we're, we're back at that same space. And I think that's exciting. Right. Uh, mm. So a couple things I, I, you know, we're playing around with different ways where you're still going to have video content. We know people like video content. Video can mm-hmm. be especially powerful medium. This is what I think of from a TV reporter. Right. Um, <laughs> and so. I, you know, I think in the next five to 10 years, certainly people aren't going to come home and watch the six o'clock news anymore. I think instead, and this is what we're trying to figure out now, we are, we have got to find a way to, 
how are we going to repackage that content so that people can watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it? And how are we going to do it in a way that people actually still want to consume it? Right. That's hmm. a bigger question yeah. you have to ask. And yeah. so, and so, you know, that's why you are seeing things like I just did a three part little docu-series on, on hurricane relief right after uh, hurricane Florence. And we did a big one, five part thing a year ago for hurricane Matthew. Um, and my wife did a whole series of docu-series. How many times can I say series? Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, we're, we're experimenting with stuff that doesn't look and feel like normal television, right? Mm -hmm. And because, and, and so you're going to see, at least from the people, you know, at local TV stations, you're going to start seeing us do things that look and feel different than what we've always, than what we've always mm -hmm. done before. But that all being said, one of the biggest ways that local TV news has changed in the last 10 years is the mass proliferation of investigative reporters that have been hired. So, hmm. uh, you know, in the economic downturn in, you know, 2007 through, mm, you know, 2010-ish, 2011-ish, uh, right. news, especially, well, local newspapers, too, and local TV stations got really, really hit hard by, by the recession. And so newsrooms had to make really hard decisions on how to spend their dollars. And so if you've got an investigative reporter who back in those days was on TV, maybe once a month, you know, are you going to, and, and makes probably more than the guy who's covering the house fires every day, uh, you're mm -hmm. going to get rid of that dude because he's more expensive and making less <laughs> stuff. And so I think at one point, luckily I was in college at this time, at one point, uh, the investigative reporter was kind of an endangered species uh, in, in local TV news. And I'm lucky that that trend was starting to reverse and people were starting, you know, re the economy is starting to improve. Research was starting to show that, that consumers really wanted investigative and deeper content, right? Something more than just surface level. Mm -hmm. And so um, I have kind of jump-started an investigative unit in each of the three TV stations I've worked with. I've worked at since since graduating college. And, you know, I say that just to kind of illustrate that um, TV stations in particular and newspapers as well are starting to realize, have been starting to realize over the last five to seven years that investigative reporting really is worth investing in. And so, I mean, look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, right? Like they mm -hmm. really invested heavily in investigative and, and really enterprise and, and in-depth reporting has really paid off in a big way. I certainly hope that trend continues. I think it would be a valuable thing <laughs> for it to continue. That, and, and guys like me, so a guy who would have had a job like the one that mm -hmm. I had in Charlotte, right? Investigative reporter at a TV station in Market 22. Um, back in the day, you would have been on TV once a month. You would have done two or three big stories mm -hmm. in the quarterly sweeps months. Um, I'm on TV at least once a week. Sometimes I'm on TV mm -hmm. five times a week, you know, if, if it's a crazy week. And so we've just ha had to adapt what we do to make ourselves <laughs> worth it. <Yeah. laughs> so, and, and it's good for me. I have too many things. <laughs> if I had to wait, you know, and only yeah. pick the best thing once a month. I'd well, be and interestingly, I wonder if, so. that, if part of that is actually the flip side of, you know, our technological revolution. The fact that you can Google for the starting point for a lot of stories that you can email people and you can get sources digitally. You like the timeline of research even for an investigative story can be shorter now than maybe it used to be when you actually had to go in person to all of these places. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But again, you know, I go back to as much as I'm helped and, you know, I'm certainly my job is made much easier that I can 
go on PACER, mm-hmm. right, to get a federal court document. I can do an accurate search on someone if I need their contact information. Like all of those things certainly help. But even in today's world where we have all of this technology, I can't just rely on that. I still have no. to, um, and this is something that I've always done dating back to my time at Elon. Um, and it's just maybe a quirk about me. I still need to go to that person's door maybe mm. and knock on their door. I still need to go to Raleigh and have meetings yeah. with those sources. I still need to pick up the phone and be in those conversations. And so there are some, you know, really good investigative reporters who rely on what we call computer assisted reporting. And that's where they get these big databases and then they use the power of computers to sift mm. through those databases and, and, you know, come up with really important stories. Um, so there are people who do that, but then I still, I'm a little more old school. I want to rely on sources. I want to rely on meetings, pe- meeting people in person. Shoe leather. I want to go to the courthouse and pull. In North Carolina, we're still in the yes. dark ages. You still can't access any court oh, records online. Oh, you're preaching online. to the choir. <laughs> Woo. If you're listening, if you're listening, anyone at the AOC, <laughs> now's the time to change it. So, hmm. yeah. Well, that's awesome. All right. So last question as we close, tell me something that, or someone who is inspiring you lately. You may have just stumped the guy who asks questions for a living. This, this is, is what happens when you put some, someone on the... Uh... Technically, this wasn't the intro email I sent you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that, means you, that means you're doing your job, right? <laughs> Look, people always ask me, can I get a list of questions that you're going to ask? And then, you know, I, uh, I say, no, here's some topics I'm going yeah. to cover. But you never give the question, right? <laughs> so you get better answers. Um, yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of things people that i that i follow that inspire me to do better work and, and things that i read and listen to and watch that are sources of inspiration professionally it'd probably be you know 60 minutes and and bill whitaker in particular who is a wbtv hmm. alum um but i will say really this. did not know that yes yeah he worked at wbtv um cool back in the day yes and now he's on 60 minutes like every at literally every week it's insane <laughs> and doing great stories uh i will say this However, um, you know, my father was killed in Afghanistan by a roadside bomb in 2005. And pretty much mm-hmm. everything since then I've done and I've lived my life in a way that I hope makes my father proud. And so, you know, I, I look to him for his sacrifice uh, for our country as a Green Beret in Afghanistan, helped protect the freedoms that I enjoy to do my job every day under the First Amendment and others. And he loved this country and he, you know, certainly wanted to make sure that our government, he, you know, still my interest in government and politics and news. And I like to think he would look at what I'm doing and say, good for you for holding these people accountable. And, you know, trust me, I come in contact with a lot of folks who question my patriotism because I'm doing a thing they don't like or question my loyalty or my allegiance to this country or what have you. And um, generally speaking, my response is that, you know, it's a good thing that my father died for me to be able to do this. And for those people to say whatever crazy thing they want to, because they have the same rights that I do. Hmm. Well, Nick, that's a really beautiful tribute to your dad. And thank you for sharing that. Um, That was, yeah, thank you. Thank you for telling that story. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. That's it for this episode of the Longleaf Pod. I'm aiming to share these conversations once a week and hope you'll join in next time. If you like this podcast, please share and subscribe. And if you have thoughts about the podcast or ideas about a person you think should be interviewed, you can find me on Twitter as at Kat Lawson. Thanks for listening.